are now listening to the Sick Invite Podcast with Kayla Herb and Ricky Grimes. Hello, my name is Kayla Herb. And I'm Ricky Grimes. And this is the Sick Invite Podcast, a storytelling show about all ailments. Big or small, chronic or temporary, the Sick Invite provides an inclusive space for you to share your story. What is wrong with you? Oh, I have a little bit of, uh, I don't know, like holiday fever, a little Christmas fever, or the regular fever. I'm not sure. Which uh, Saturday night fever? No, it, well, maybe. But I have one of the, one of the things... I'm, I'm excited for all that is uh, to come, uh, but also a little sad that, uh, you know, because the year is ending. It's one of those type of melancholy type of feelings. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And how are you today? Uh, I'm good and very excited about the first of three episodes we have yeah. for my final project. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'll get into that later. The final project for this particular uh, uh, thing. Cause for you, this class. Because you have other stuff and there may be other ones in the future. That there may, may be. There may be. Mm-hmm. This show is brought to you by KaylaHerb.com, where knit blankets, custom quilts, and other homemade items are available for purchase and custom order. Do you like our show? Please tell everyone about it. Follow us, like us, and share our content at The Sick Invite Podcast. We also have merch. Hoodies are now available on Mm TheSickInvitePodcast.com, along with shirts, mugs, stickers, and buttons. If you like the work that The Sick Invite Podcast is doing, consider supporting us financially. We graciously accept donations of any amount. Your donation will help us cover the cost of equipment, advertising, research, access, and time spent preparing for each episode for just $3 a month, but you could pay more if you want. But for a minimum of $3 a month, Patreon members receive a monthly gift, early access to all episodes, and bonus content. If you would like to make a one-time donation, you can do so through the module on our website, thesickinvitepodcast.com. Thank you. Please send us your story through our website. There's a form to fill out at the bottom of the page, and we will contact you with further instructions. We want to hear from everybody. All experiences are valid. Mm -hmm. Today's episode is the first of three that are being used for my disability and diversity course at CUNY School of Professional Studies. So thank you to Professor Professor Andrew Markham for allowing me to share this data in an accessible platform so that others have the opportunity to learn from these issues. If you haven't already, please check out our preview episode to hear more about why we chose to interview these three individuals. For her privacy, we've changed her name. We will refer to her as Anne. Thanks in advance for listening. Ricky and I will return after the interview to discuss these topics further. Enjoy! I'm a white 24-year-old female, um, and I'm a registered nurse. Great. How long have you been a nurse now? A year and a half. How's that been going in COVID time? (laughs) Well, I started (laughs) my career uh March 3rd 2020 oh my so <laughs> literally first day of orientation um I did a week without a mask and then since then I've always worn a mask at work and it's crazy to like when I say that to older nurses they're like uh, especially like ones that worked in the 80s they're like wow like that's like me starting my career with HIV and AIDS it's like yeah wow it's it was like a it's a different time comparably but um, I was supposed to have a 12 week orientation and it was cut to three weeks because we were so short staffed and put out on my own to start on my own. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So did they just have you jump right into COVID patients? Or did you have to kind of like work your way up to that? Um, my unit that I was staffed on became the first COVID unit because we have isolation rooms. So they're all like usually for infectious disease. So when we were at a very low number of COVID patients at the way beginning, we were the designated unit. So they brought me down to 
um, the oncology floor because they were trying to stay the clean floor, but it ended up just taking over the whole hospital. So that was about a week and a half that I didn't have a COVID patient, but then I was just thrown right into COVID. Wow. Yeah. Now, are you experiencing any, so you're a hospital worker, Mm -hmm. you said, right? Mm -hmm. So do you have any people coming in um, with long COVID symptoms or would that be more of a outpatient thing? No, we've had, um, like it's now part of someone's like past medical history, like that comes up on like their history and physical, it comes up as COVID-19 and it usually says the date. Um, Sometimes it's like patients come in and just on the chest x-ray, it still shows that they have some kind of remnants of COVID pneumonia, even if it's been months. But I do remember specifically, there's, there was one patient who is now blind from COVID and she was told that it was MS and she went to an MS specialist and they were like, this is not MS, this is COVID. And she um, now uses a walker. She's, she's pretty much legally blind. She said she could still see light. So she can see like some figures, but she can't like drive a car. And she has a seven-year-old and a single mom and all of that from COVID. Yeah. So like, that's the, that's like the most severe case of long haul symptoms, but it's crazy to think that now it's part of your past medical history that one comes in. Yeah. And how fast it all came and how little we knew about it and how little we still know about the long-term effects. But I wanted to um, talk to you and I'm interviewing three other medical professionals. So I assume that you see tons and tons and tons of patients. And especially if you're in a hospital, you deal with people that are having emergencies that are having chronic pain. And there's, I don't know statistically if it's 50, 50 or what it is, but I'm curious of how often are symptoms visible when people come in complaining about chronic pain or something that's wrong? Um, visible as in like emotionally, I can, I can get from a patient, you know, if they're like crying in pain or they're like doubled over and anything. Um, but for the patients that like part of a past medical history, again, is it's listed as chronic pain. Um, so they come in and they already have on like their outpatient meds that they, you know, take Percocet at home and that's their normal. So um, usually when they come into the hospital, if they are in any kind of pain, Percocet's not going to work for them because they take that at home. Um, but it's usually like the patients that come in with chronic pain or an exacerbation of chronic pain. I feel like it is usually visible to me if it's an emotional reaction, you know, if they're crying and anything, but Mm -hmm. if they, and then usually if on like my physical exam, especially like abdominal pain, I could feel where it's tender, you know, it's a little harder and then they like jolt in pain. So in that, in that respect, I could see the pain, you know, if it's a physical more than anything but only really in the abdomen mm-hmm. like the easiest are, way to say there's visual cues to you that mm-hmm. they're in distress and they're here for a reason mm-hmm. <laughs> okay mm-hmm. that's interesting now is that something that's taught in school or is that a learned um task that you learn um it's taught in school like you know like what left upper quadrant pain means, what right lower quadrant pain means, like of that respect. 
Um, but something that I didn't learn until I was in my profession, which is really scary, it's called the pain ad uh, scale. So pain assessment for Alzheimer's and dementia patients. So nonverbal, for the most part, nonverbal patients. And it, um, there's like five categories of it. And it's mostly like, are they grimacing? Are they moaning? Are they grabbing an area? And like, that's how you do your pain assessment on a nonverbal patient. That was not taught to us in school. That was something wow. I learned at work, which is, I work on a med surge floor. So most of my patients are 70 up. Alzheimer's and dementia is pretty prevalent. And that's not something that was taught in school. Wow. Now, was that uh, taught from like a fellow nurse or is that like a hospital policy type thing? It's a hospital policy. So if it's part of their uh, medical history, the Alzheimer's and dementia, we automatically have to add it. Um, For like MR patients, like mentally retarded patients, we do also add that even though it is designated Alzheimer's dementia, we usually also use it for nonverbals. So um, it's pretty much the same kind of thing. If they do, if they grimace, if they moan and everything, you can use Mm -hmm. the same kind of scale. So if they're at a mental capacity where they might not be able to articulate it, um, anybody who kind of falls under that. So would you do the same thing with like children? I don't really get children. So I can't really say I, I, the youngest people I got is 18. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'll save that for my pediatric nurse. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's, that's really interesting. Um, and I'm curious. So when you say MR, is that also a, a hospital thing? Cause that seems yeah. like an outdated term. No, we it's, say MR. Yeah. We don't so say, we don't say mentally retarded. We say MR. Yeah. That's so, cause in school, there's like 10 different ways to say it. Yeah. So I'm always yeah. curious to see how society's catching up with that. So how else have you found that you are advocating for patients? I guess if you would like to focus on the geriatric age group, we could do that. Okay. Um, well, in nursing school, pretty much at the start of every semester, whether it be like, you know, my geriatric course, my pediatric course, whatever it was, I feel like always on the first day of class, it was like how the nurse's role is in that specific specialty and advocate is always a part of that definition. Um, we're always going to be patient advocate because we're the eyes and the ears of the doctors, like everything that you hear about a nurse, it's, that's what was on like our first slide of every semester. Um, in the role of a patient advocate, it can range from, you know, being the one that's annoying the doctor to put in orders for, you know, any kind of pain meds that they needed or allergy meds. It could be constipation meds, anything like that. But then it can go as far as, you know, saying to the case management, no, this person's not ready for discharge or no, like, why are you sending them home? They should really be going to a rehab. Um, So it goes from doctors, it goes to case management, it goes to dietary even, like if you're sending my diabetic patient a plate full of sugar, no, I'm sending that back, you know? So um, kind of being the eyes and the ears of not only the doctors, but every other profession that's seeing that patient because they're usually in and out you know, and a nurse is with them for 12 hours and then hands off to the next nurse for another 12 hours. There's always going to be someone there watching them. But yeah, I'd say I have such a special place in my heart for nurses. (laughs) (laughs) I've never met a nurse I didn't like. Mostly doctors I didn't like, but 
because I feel like nurses are given a much more maternal approach mm -hmm. to patient care mm -hmm. where it's really lacking in in doctors where so when you go to a hospital setting I think that the nurses are always very hands-on but when I go to an office setting I don't have as much time obviously with the nurse right. and it's much more based on the relationship with the doctor right and there's a big difference I find in hospital ER doctors and doctors who have their office and they hardly ever leave it or they're right. affiliated with the hospital they're there like once a week right so it's it's interesting and that'll be something I definitely compare going forward and patients notice it and I feel like it's not really um I feel like people were kind of holding back a little bit with COVID you know like giving the doctors a break but now that I'd say like in the past couple of months more so patients are expressing I don't like that doctor I don't want that doctor to come see me and I'm like hell yeah okay we won't see that doctor again you know so um it's it, it's been like a very recent change and they'll say like they'll always say bedside manner bedside manner and I'm like yeah they come in and out and they don't listen to you and it's and like even in the documentation of the doctors you can notice that you didn't go see that patient today you did not go see that patient today you didn't do a full assessment on that patient because I just saw this patient two, two hours after you did and now she's crying because you were in and out of that room and didn't hear her concerns it's, it's totally different in a hospital, I feel, because they have a lot of the physicians, like hospitalists that are on the floor, they have, they could have upwards of like 30 patients and then they have to document all of that. And the documentation, I feel like it overtakes your whole shift and it overtakes their brains as that's the task to be done, not actually help the patient. Mm -hmm. There's, cool. I can think of yeah. one specific doctor that I have that issue with like yeah I don't, even, I don't even work with her she's only in the daytime but I'm just like <laughs> yeah no and I I know what you mean and I I was thinking about that too and then even like watching tv um obviously it's not accurate but just the hours and the things that they put medical professionals through like I, I understand the disconnect that comes mm -hmm. like instantly because you're overworked. You don't, you cannot physically do both. Yeah. But I, I don't know the ins and outs of hospitals or policy making to understand how to change that and make it better for the patient. So what would you, if you had like a wish list of what to do, and if you had a perfect hospital that would accurately and uh, actually pay attention to the patients and get them better and then sent home two things um staffing which I'm sure the other medical professionals that you talk to will say that um because I can tell you when I have a patient load of seven versus a patient load of four my patient load of four is going to get more focus from me than my patient load of seven that's just mm -hmm. this, that's just how it's going to work because I'm one person with two hands second thing is I don't know if um, this is any, like, this is something I needed to explain to my grandfather because he didn't understand, but the difference between MD and DO. So okay. DOs, they are more holistically trained. And I, I don't know, like actually behind like what their classes are in medical school, but the bedside manner between DOs and MDs are so different. And it's just the, uh, like the root of 
their practice. So it's doctors of osteopathic medicine versus medical doctors. They get the same degree, they get the same accreditation and everything, but you can tell the difference between an MD and a DO. MD is like a little bit more outdated. More people are becoming DOs, but that that's another thing is I feel like more more DOs in the world. Yeah, so I think that um, probably, and I'd have to verify this, but the DO probably has more of an updated history of disability and understanding mm-hmm. of disability where, are you familiar with the social model of disability? When, in your questions, I looked it up, but I, okay. I understand it just from the graphs that I saw, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so just brief, 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 brief recap is there's a, plenty of ways to approach disability, but the main two are the social model and the medical model. Mm-hmm. The medical model aims to cure, and only cure where the social model uh, views society as contributing to the disability. So that's if say so, um, disability is a social construct and you're only as disabled as society allows you to be. I actually, in my undergrad, I did a research study. I, it was like a work study that you, know, you could apply. And I worked with, um, the dean of the nurse practitioner program so she was never my teacher but it was a whole um article on the social determinants of health and how they have an effect on your chronic diseases so what i was like in charge of doing is like was going through patients h and p's and saying this person lives on a second story home is oxygen dependent um and the home health care nurse is coming in and seeing all of this how are they getting to their doctor's appointments they're not they're not going to their doctor's appointments because they can't get down the stairs and it's like how sick can that person get just because they can't afford a new place to live or a first floor home or live in an assisted living mm-hmm. so and I, that's I a perfect that, example I that to you I, I it's like it's a really awesome article it's about yes, I love that. nurses yeah yes definitely send that and I'll use it to back up my thesis too yeah that's great but that, that's a perfect example of what it is. And it's if they were in other situations, they probably wouldn't be as sick or disabled right. as they are. But society and their situation makes it that way. Right. So I think that a lot of um, some doctors, when you have a disease or an illness that does not have a cure, such as just aging, mm-hmm. um, dementia, chron- uh, chronic illnesses that are incurable like mine, um, my rheumatologist is, has a very holistic approach. He may actually be a DO now that you've said that. Um, yeah. I'd have to look it up, but he, you know, he has a good mixture of Chinese medicine and um, Western medicine. So he'll give you the drugs, but he'll also be like, hey, these herbs will also help you. Mm-hmm. And he will look at it in a way of, I know you're not going to get better. This isn't going to, to fix you, but this will make it a little easier. Yeah. And I think a lot of hospital doctors, they just want to get your name off the chart so they can send you home. Exactly. That, that doesn't work with a lot of diseases and a lot of illnesses, especially when you just get older, life just happens and everybody's going to become disabled if you live long enough to yeah. do it. Um, but do you have any other examples or situations of um, patients who maybe needed um an advocate, for example, a lot of the people that I've interviewed are people who've been told they're lying or they're drug seeking because of things that are kind of hard to prove. Like you mentioned visible cues of pain and such, but a lot of those won't show up in a blood test. Mm -hmm. So how do you 
approach somebody who maybe the doctor thinks they're lying, but you can see the cues that they're not. I can think of one that not necessarily was the, did anyone think the patient was lying, but where it was, it ended up, okay. So my biggest fear when I, like some, some nurses biggest fear when they get a patient is that a family member is in the medical field because that family member will be the one that's calling and asking all the questions. My biggest fear is when a patient comes in and they don't have someone in the medical field. Out of respect to the patient and protection of the person who we are interviewing today, we chose to remove most of the information about this specific patient. So all you need to know about what we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode is that a patient came to the hospital with very obvious symptoms and the proper tests were not given and she wasn't seeing the proper doctors that she should have. Um, and by the time the person interviewing saw her, she was the sixth nurse to do so. Uh, and because of this neglect, the patient ended up passing away. Uh, furthermore, there was not proper paperwork completed in time for the patient, so the patient's um, wishes were not honored. And that is the gist of the situation. I, like, I couldn't help but, like, after, you know, debriefed and went through everything in my head and, like, you know, I really had to talk myself down and say, like, none of that was my fault. Like, I always get, like, critical like that. I was like, if that woman's daughter was a nurse, she would have probably been living. Or mm -hmm. if her daughter, if her husband was a doctor, she probably would be living. That was, like, my, my, like, the case when you sent me all those questions. That was, like, the case that I thought of, like, advocation for that patient. Yeah. It was completely missed. And, and that's family, such a shame that it's relied on the family to do that. It is. It is. Because, like... I don't ever want to be that annoying person calling all the time. Cause I get those, I get those family members and like, yes, it's annoying in the moment, but I know that that person's just advocating for them. But I just get so fearful of like the time that one of my parents ends up in the hospital and like, I can't be there if I'm like away or whatever, I'm going to be that advocate over the phone. And like, are they actually listening to me? Mm -hmm. So in the realm of advocation for a patient, it, it gets, like in that sense I was like if that was my mom I'd have a lawsuit on my hands like yeah. I would that family has an a beautiful lawsuit if they really want to but I don't even think that's in in their mind right now mm -hmm. but it's hard too when you're in such a state of grief like you're not even yeah. thinking of that at the time yeah. but that's that's outrageous I am yeah. gonna use that example in the absolutely in the but is that do you think that's a result of understaffing or just being overwhelmed and nobody thinking to? I don't know if it's necessarily, maybe it's understaffing and the fact of like, you know, that ER doctor saw 20 patients that day and just like that one consult slipped their mind. I just can't understand how that slips your mind. And then to have, you know, a hospitalist in-house following her and then have five nurses taking care of her and not one said anything about that like that's that's our role is to say something like that is and maybe it could be staffing of like that the ER doctor was overwhelmed and had other patients but 
and on the other hand it's negligence like it's Mm -hmm. it was completely avoidable maybe it was like overlooked because she I remember her like when I was prepping her for the scan she kept saying like I just really don't feel well I just really don't feel well maybe it was like taken as like a like a boy who cried wolf kind of thing I don't know like that's that's something that happens sometimes in the hospital of like that's that's where it gets scary is like they can come she can complain all she wants but if it's just going to be keep getting ignored each shift then when it comes to the point where it actually something does go wrong it's not the boy who cried wolf she was being real with her complaints I don't know she that's like literally a, a patient that I'll never stop thinking about because mm-hmm. that was that was my first patient that I found dead yeah and it was completely avoidable well so now let's talk about you as a <laughs> nurse how do you manage these kinds of things because I would imagine it would be really hard to have the empathy for your patients but to also keep that distance so you don't get too attached especially if they do die so how, um, how did you handle this situation and how do you handle things like that going forward? So uh, I started therapy. <laughs> Yay! Um, <laughs> so that was, that was I, I did, um, it took a while. I didn't start until January 2021. So I did a while without it during COVID. But I feel like once the vaccine started to come around, I needed a therapist because um, empathy is kind of, my empathy tank is empty now mm-hmm. when it comes to COVID patients because like uh-huh. you can sit there and tell me that you did ev- I did everything how did I end up here you missed a step you didn't get vaccinated <laughs> um so my empathy tank is empty for that and what frustrates me in that regards and I like I really feel like I'm talking to my therapist because I just said this to her last week <laughs> <laughs> um why don't I have that mindset when it comes to someone who's like an alcoholic, you know, and comes in with liver cirrhosis? It's the same kind of thing of like avoidable. I don't know. I just get so wrapped up in that. And not like it's ever changes my demeanor in front of a patient. I never let it, but it's just my mentality when Mm -hmm. I get out of work of like how frustrating of a shift it was. And like, how it could have been easier if you know that patient got vaccinated you know and I, yeah. that patient didn't even come in well I think you can still separate it with that kind of stuff like alcoholism and addiction is still an illness and like it's still like Absolutely. a lot of barriers for them to go through yeah. it's very easy to get vaccinated so I, <laughs> I, I understand your the differences that you're feeling I think that yeah. that's that makes a lot of sense that you would not feel the same anger because yeah. I yeah I I get that I'm on your team here. <laughs> Um, but how is, is therapy going? Is that popular on, among nurses or is it like a sign of weakness still? No, is that like, still I, so I am the youngest on my unit by 15 years, days and nights. I just, weirdly enough, it's not very common, but I'm work on a pretty small unit. So I think like people stay comfortable and they stay at the job. Um, but so therapy, I feel like is more talked about in like, you know, your twenties and stuff, not the people that I work with in their 40s I set um one of them's going through a divorce I set her up on psychologytoday.com where you could go like buy your insurance and like what you need like oh I'm going through a divorce and so like gets you a specific uh therapist 
I've gotten her and then my preceptor, I got her a therapist because <laughs> it's just not talked about. Like why just come, you, I, you come to work and vent to me, but, and I'll listen, of course, but get a therapist too, because mm-hmm. you can vent to me about work stuff and I can understand, but I don't understand your children's stuff. I don't have children. <laughs> I don't understand <laughs> marriage stuff, you know, but yeah. um yeah, it's it's not real. It's taboo to talk about, but I I'll be the first to bring it up. I don't I I'll bring it up to my coworkers. And be like you, I'll, I'll, I'll sign you up right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love that. I mean, I think that there is definitely just our generation and younger. We love therapy. Everybody goes to oh, therapy, yeah. but for some reason, like Gen X and above, it's still like viewed as weak or like it's yeah. weird to go. But it's not like everybody needs therapy. Yeah. Um, but I think especially medical professionals do, and especially after COVID, like just the mental burnout that yeah. you can experience from just ongoing trauma, it's long hours. And that, you know, reflects onto your patients if you're not coming to work with a fresh face every day. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I think it says a lot about you as a nurse, as a person that you've already, you're like, hardly into your career you're a fresh little baby and you're still like I need therapy that's great yeah. I love that um so I another question I wanted to ask is do you are there any other things that you wish that you learned when you were in school or when you do nurses do clinicals I assume mm-hmm. all yeah. medical professionals do yeah is there anything that you wish you learned then that you would have loved to have once you were in the thick of it um so one of my coworkers is the clinical instructor um, for LAU, I think. Um, but she loves to come to me and ask like um, about her students of like, oh, what should we go through this week and stuff because I'm the most recent out of school. Um, and I genuinely like the night before you messaged me, I was just talking to her about um, how in nursing school, it wasn't until I was in my first job that I had a nonverbal patient. I never had a nonverbal patient. And it wasn't until I was in my job that I had my first transgender patient. And it was never something. And I know, I know in one of my clinicals that there was a patient that was um, transgender male to female. And it was only like 2016, 2017. And um, my instructor wouldn't let us take her as a patient and said like oh it's it's intense it's intensive like everything that she was going through and it wasn't like she was getting her gender reassignment surgery it was just that she was and it's part of her past medical history I think she was there with like pneumonia or something but like like Mm -hmm. why not have us experience a transgender patient and it was I literally three weeks ago I had my first transgender patient and like I said, I'm the youngest by 15 years. So passing off to the next nurse, what well, does she look like? Does she look like a her? Like, why does it matter? Mm, yeah. It's just part of her past medical history. She's here with, I don't even remember what she was there with, but like, yeah, just I'm related to the genitalia. Her name is Nicole, you know, uh, did you, did, did you see? I'm like, she's 50 years old. No, I'm not going to pull down her pants and look there. Like, <laughs> She's here for pneumonia. <laughs> why, are, why are we talking about that? But yeah, in nursing school, that was, I, I wouldn't say it was like we had, I remember like my maternity professor, um, she was a part of the LGBTQ community, which 
was also a rarity in nursing professionals, which is horrible. But she, um, she, it was like, she's married with two kids and then she uh, got a divorce and she married a woman. And she, her last class, everyone said, don't skip. It was even after the final, don't skip the last class. And they would never say why. And then it was like how to treat um, uh, members of the LGBTQ community as a patient. And it wasn't just maternity wise. She was saying across the broad spectrum. And she said like, I'm teaching you this because I know that you're not going to be taught this the rest of your career. And like so many kids skipped that class just because it, we didn't need to be there because it was after the final. I drove myself 45 minutes to that class because I was like, I can't miss this. And she's like one of my favorite professors. But that was something that I know is very recently taught about. So the older nurses that I work with, it's still just like, whoa, whoa, wait, really? And this, this woman, it was no different. I don't know. It, I, so when I said that to my clinical instructor, I said, if you have someone that's part of that community, and even, even still, just the other day, I had a patient with HIV. So I say, home, from home with partner, history of HIV, that's what those two meds are for not even there for anything HIV related, but mm. the nurse goes, it's like, eh. why, like, why are we starting off? You haven't even stepped into that room and taken a look at that patient and you're already rolling your eyes. Yeah. It's, it's so frustrating. I'm working with older nurses and that's what's driving me out. Like I I'm, I'm quitting in March because that'll be my two years. I'm, I'm out of that unit because just that, that harshness of their thought process still. Yeah, you're not the first nurse that I've talked to who has quit just from other people, uh, mostly yeah. their superiors who are yeah. just closed-minded and are not getting with the times. No. Um, I was talking to a previous guest that we had on the podcast. She's in medical school and she's disabled herself. And she's re- literally rewriting the curriculum in the school to include in their mock exams, include disabled people. because there's so many assumptions so like somebody who's a wheelchair user they come in and they assume like oh they're not sexually active because how could they possibly be so they won't check them for stds or other things um and it's such a reoccurring issue so i appreciate that you said that about lgbtq people too because there's so many assumptions on your identity or your religion or your gender or sexuality that discriminate you're discriminated against medically Mm -hmm. so and that's this class i'm doing this interview for is for disability and diversity so your perspective has been really really helpful um and hopeful (laughs) (laughs) about the future of medicine um and i I think you're doing a great job but i'm like talking like i'm concluding i still have more questions for you (laughs) (laughs) so just knowing you as a person you've always been a smart cookie when you come across a patient that you don't know what their disability or their illness is, because there's so many things in the world, you could never possibly learn every single one in school. Mm-hmm. Do you do your own research about things that you might not know enough about? Um, to the extent of a basic Google search, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's about it. Um, because how toxic a hospital setting is, is we have a timer of... Oh the time the patient is put on our board to when we receive report and it's 30 minutes that we have to have that patient at back up on the floor so by the time the patient comes up to me have I looked through everything no that's dangerous and I know that it is but it's like 
well, you got to get them up to the floor. And it's always, it's like, why are we, why are we competing? Why are we rushing things like this? There's no need for that. Um, so do things get missed like that? Absolutely. And that's the really, really scary thing because like, it's not, and maybe it's not until like I sit down that I see like, wait, they have something that requires like a telemetry monitor and they need to be actually be on the telemetry floor. They can't be on my floor. And then that's a whole nother process. But if it's something for, for the most part, like the patients that come on my floor are pretty much like cookie cutter, the same patient. Like they have, you know, COPD and then they have heart failure and then they have high blood pressure. So things like that, it's, it's a rarity that I get like something that I'm not really sure about. Like sometimes I get like, I think I've only had like one sickle cell anemic, anemic patient. Um, I'm trying to think of like obscure things. There was one that I like had just learned about and I can't think of what it was. And it was something with like an acronym. It'll come to me, but mm-hmm. it was something that I had to like look up. And then when I'd say that to the next nurse, they'd be like, what is that? I'm like, well, actually I could tell you now because I sat down and I could actually look it up. But to the extent of knowing like symptoms and stuff, it's really just that basic Google search of the bullet points, which is really scary. Mm-hmm. because uh, they're rushed up to my floor and sometimes the patients though if like they're alert and oriented and can tell you I ask my patients I'm like what is that because, that's great like you know your you know your body best I'm not gonna argue with you on that like and I always say that to patients when they like refuse the medicine oh that makes me feel funny okay you know your body best I'm not gonna force that on you mm-hmm. and patient autonomy too I say that too a lot yeah that's a big thing Um, and then the reason I asked that is because I have a friend whose son has a rare mitochondrial disease. Mm -hmm. I I don't remember which type because there's a whole bunch. Um, but you know, it's so rare that most of the time when they were, you know, first getting started, they didn't, the doctors didn't know what it was. So the parents are the best advocates I've ever met. They're the mom is also, um, chronically ill. So they are well-versed in advocating for yourself. So they're probably the best parents that kid could ever have. But having to explain a medical condition to a doctor who doesn't know what it is, yeah, that's it doesn't scary. make you feel very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I think that some, and I've had this too, where like they know what Crohn's disease is, but they don't know what's autoimmune and they don't know that like it affects my right. joints too, or like my eyes, it can cause inflammation in the eye. So I, I'll talk about Crohn's disease all day, but I always appreciate when a professional goes, oh, I don't, I didn't know that. Or tell me more about that rather mm-hmm. than just pretending or lying that they, yeah. they know enough about it because it can only be helpful to you to learn more about it about for me? the next person yeah. who comes yeah. along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had other questions on here, but I don't think they all can uh, work for you here. Well, I, I think that, you know, we've talked about people that you work with who are not the best. <laughs> Have you ever spoken to management about them or is that like super controversial in an already understaffed hospital? So when I saw that question on there, um, so I have a manager. She's my night manager. So she's an assistant manager. She and I get along very well, like in the sense that like, people always joke that like we are the exact same person like we have the same emotional response like me and like me and her just love like the old men like we find them to be adorable 
but there's one thing that I don't like to be compared to with her like that I don't like to when people say that oh you guys are just the same specifically she says with ulcerative colitis only ulcerative colitis male patients she says drug addict that's all she said Mm. drug addict and like uh, my ex-boyfriend he had ulcerative colitis and I have been with him when he was in flares and it's like scary and you see like the toilet bowl full of blood and it's really and he still will not go to the hospital because he says the same thing he's like I am prejudiced against like people judge me right at the door because I say it to UC flare up but she says that all the time so the scary thing is is if I go to management it's her about her behavior Mm. you know so I whenever she says that I just like roll my eyes at her and for the most part she doesn't take patients at all so it's not like I'll still be that patient's nurse but it's still you're saying that in front of a unit of nurses you're going to put that idea in their head you know Mm -hmm. so in that respect I don't know I I feel like I'm I'm still a baby nurse so I don't really feel comfortable in that kind of position like going to management about something yet because I'm like well what if I'm wrong by saying that or what if they find out that I said that and then it ruins my night or my career like Mm -hmm. catastrophic thinking (laughs) um but like with in her case I just I roll my eyes at her because she says it with every ulcerative colitis patient oh yeah I mean I've been there um Mm -hmm. um, so I don't have UC but I have Crohn's right and I almost every time I've been to the emergency room, I've been accused of seeking drugs and they'll just say it to my face. I'm like, please just look at my chart, do my blood work. You'll know in a second that I'm not. Um, But I had one doctor, I don't, I don't like morphine. Um, I don't like the way it makes me feel, but it's really like the only thing that I could take, but at the time I didn't know that. So I was in a flare and my gastro was a couple of days before I could get my scan so the gesture was like all right if it gets really bad just go to the er and we'll manage your pain so that you can you're not suffering for the next few okay. days while we figure it all out so i did and uh he was like <laughs> the doctor was like well i can't give you narcotics and i was like i didn't ask for narcotics <laughs> and he said, i said i don't want morphine and i asked for something <laughs> else um but and that, i remember that doctor he happened to know my gastro personally so he called him to confirm that i was not a drug addict and luckily, oh my god but even if I was, how rude. Um, oh my God. But it's it's hard because when you have, I mean, you know, when you have stomach issues, you really can't, there's not a lot of options for you pain-wise. Right. right. But it's, it's, especially me, like at the time I was like 98 pounds, you know, I'm very tiny. I was, mm-hmm. I look strung out. Mm-hmm. So I guess I look like an addict, but they didn't approach an addict very well either. No. <laughs> so it is, it is hard. Um, I don't, really say that I'm discriminating against that often because I have quite a bit of privilege under my belt um yeah especially that he could just call my doctor and the doctor would vouch for me right not a lot of people have that privilege um, right and it was also just timeline happened to work out for me but I'm happy that you are on the good side of a lot of issues <laughs> um I know it's like I I wanted to interview a lot of healthcare workers in addition to patients to highlight that I'm not just here to talk smack about healthcare workers. I really don't right. feel that way. I think that there's a big issue and that we can make things easier for everybody. 
uh, how do we do that? So I'm yeah. really appreciative of you coming here today, talking to me, telling me about these experiences. I know it's probably not easy to recall. So tell your therapist, I say hi and thank you. <laughs> I'm seeing her tomorrow. <laughs> um, but is there, you, you touched on so many really, really great things and I'll be using so much of this in my research. So thank you so much, but I don't want to cut you off. If there's anything else you want to bring up today, feel free. Um, in the, in the list of questions, you asked if I had any adverse medical experiences with doctors. And I know this is like the smallest, smallest thing comparably to most people that, you know, are more heavily like discriminated against, but I had my 10th, my sophomore year of um, college, I started with crazy bruises up and down my legs, only my legs. And it would be like bruises like this, like, and with no source. Like I didn't like hit it against anything. My grandmother and my mother are anemic. So my grandmother sees um, a hematologist. I went to her hematologist, but I went in my college sweatshirt and the hematologist was like, well, at, at college, I assume you drink. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, well, it could just be like a drunk escapade. Ooh. And didn't even order any labs on me or anything. I went to a different hematologist and I, I'm iron deficient anemia. I was like, you just like automatically assume just because I'm in college, that's where these bruises are coming from. I, yeah. I never went to that doctor again, but you know, now I just take iron supplements and I know it's iron deficiency anemia is like this small of a problem compared to most people, but like, just hey, untreated, it, it could be very bad. So. It could be. <laughs> but Don't like, undersell just, it. <laughs> but just like an experience like that, it's, and I feel like also once I joined the medical community, like I was in college, I was in nursing school, but I didn't quite have like, you know, the backbone to advocate for myself at that point. But once I like go to doctors now, I think I don't even outwardly say I'm a nurse. Even I think it's just like the verbiage that I use. Like instead of like, oh, I was coughing up mucus, I was coughing up sputum. Like when I say sputum, it just <laughs> completely changes the dialect between the doctor and I. And it's that again, like I was saying before, with like, you know, having someone in the medical community advocating for you, like as a family member, like, were you gonna just ignore me if I told you that it was coughing up mucus and then now I'm saying sputum? Because with COVID, I had COVID in September, I was coughing up gray sputum and it was thick gray. And that's not expected with COVID. I was turned away at every door of an urgent care because I needed like something like fast. And then I ended up having a sinus infection and my primary care physician actually ordered me something. But once I say sputum, I feel like I'm just using sputum as like an example, but like <laughs> once I say something like of the same medical verbiage, I feel like then I'm actually listened to, which yeah. is really scary. And it's not something I noticed until after I'm like in the career that I am. Yeah. That My mom taught me the same thing. She's a nurse or yeah. retired now, but she used to tell me, she's like, all right, don't say, talk about your poop. You talk about your stool. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so uh, little things like that, it did always change. The, and then I would notice that too in the hospital. She would always meet me there or she would drive me there yeah. or whatever it was. And you could see the difference they talked to me than the way they talked to her, especially if she would like talk like diagnosis code numbers. I'm like, right. who knows that? <laughs> um, but it, it, you definitely see a difference. Um, yeah. 
and like I I've and I've talked to people about that too when you're trying to describe your pain like don't just be like my belly hurts like try and like be more specific about it and they'll be a little bit more receptive it's not like a catch-all to get their attention but it does help uh, or at least it gets some wheels turning a little bit more yeah but it's hard yeah do you have um anything else you want to bring up today no I think that's it okay well thank you again of course so much um usually I have people sign off for the thanks for the sick invite but I didn't even prep you for that (laughs) (laughs) thank you again Anne for coming on our show and discussing all of these issues she raised attention to a lot of things I didn't really know about and other things that I'm like but of course yeah yeah. (laughs) it makes sense yeah Uh, But one thing that really stuck out to me was her talking about reading body language and taking cues from people who are nonverbal or Mm -hmm. people who have a hard time communicating. How are you with doing that with not with verbal, nonverbal stuff like uh, with with body language, like observing body? Are you good at something like that? Or or did you like when she was explaining it, did you think like, oh, this is something I should be better at? Or is that like, do you think there's a valuable skill to that just in in, I think that it's something that we should definitely be better at. And we talk about it again on a the next episode that mm-hmm. we have um they talk about you know d- communicating with people that ha- make assumptions um she you know she talks about somebody with autism but we'll get into that next episode mm-hmm. but you know i was talking to my friend hope uh her mom was on the episode not too long ago famously and uh she's in vet school right now she's finishing up and i was talking to her about this and she is like the master of this with animals because an animal cannot tell you <laughs> As far as I, well, verbally, certainly, as far as I know, yes. Yeah, and I've seen this a lot of people who have pets and learning what your dog's physical being means and what, like, their tail wagging in their ears and just their physical behavior means about how they're feeling. And we can learn that about humans, too. And I I I think I have understood it more in a sense of danger, just growing up, knowing what to avoid, but from a perspective of pain, it's nothing that I've ever thought about. Certainly. And, and you know, and I think especially what you mentioned about with, with animals, a lot of the times it's about a rapport. And so with people, mm-hmm. and uh, just when you Anne was talking in her interview, a lot of it's about building a rapport. And sometimes when you're in these situations as some of these healthcare professionals and you don't have a lot of time, you have a lot of people. And you, to build a rapport takes time, effort, and, and basically to open yourself up you know, in a way that's not comfortable. Mm-hmm. So it's not easy. I, I, I know, I know certainly. Not. And I know you were looking at some, some data on, on this type of stuff. Where yeah. And it's important because as a professional, you would hope that the, the, you know, the patient would be like, Oh, well, you know, why didn't they just tell me that? But you can't always rely on the individual to one properly communicate that the pain that they're feeling. Yeah. But two, even have the medical knowledge to properly explain how they're feeling. Um, like it going in and saying my stomach hurts and like you're talking about your whole abdomen, I know. you know? Yeah. So I think the, this is really important with language barriers, with children, with cognitively impaired individuals, with nonverbal individuals. And again, we'll talk about that a little bit more on the next episode too. Um, but she also made a really great point on the expectation that graduated individuals will have to learn on the job. Mm-hmm. And who is establishing these policies? Is there continuing education for people? Like it, you're, you're in law school. You, when you eventually become a lawyer, don't you have to? Isn't there an expectation of continued education to yeah, just keep up with laws there's and a re- such? There's a requirement as as a as a practicing attorney that you need to, in order to remain, you know, certified to practice. There's a 
you know, a, a requirement to do a certain number of continuing uh, credits of edu education. Now, how uh, fruitful those are, you know, is it just checking a box or is it, I mean, but the, the incentive is to do so. Yeah. I don't know how, you know, how much people put into those and how much people get out of those is another thing entirely. But to answer your question, yes, there is a requirement for something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then even just like, you know, corporate policies to do that. Like I, I've had jobs where they require you, please go take an Excel class yeah. once a year yeah. just to brush up on things. It's, it can't hurt, but um, you know, I say it can't hurt, but it can because they don't, th there's just not enough time in the day That's right. for these individuals. So she also brings up staffing issues, which is going to be a reoccurring thing across all three interviewers that we have. They are overworked, underpaid, difficult hours and toxic workplaces. And I mean, you could say that for a lot of careers, but I think especially over this last year and through the pandemic, it's a real issue yeah and that you can't possibly even if you have the best intentions in the world and you want to be there for your patient you physically can't right and then we get burnout <laughs> right tell me um, a little bit about that nurse leader issued an article in 2020 titled the impact of nurse leadership styles on nurse burnout and the authors concluded nurse burnout is a global issue and yet nurse leadership plays a significant role in reducing nurse burnout the functions of leadership on nurse burnout include empowering and supporting nurses, providing authentic leadership, applying transformational leadership, and creating a team climate for nurses. Nurse leaders need to reassess their leadership styles and provide intellectual stimulation to influence nurses. Transformational and authentic leadership styles demonstrate effectiveness of inspiring and motivating nurses. Transformational and authentic leaders can foster nurse engagement, improve nurse satisfaction, and reduce nurse burnout, which ultimately promotes patient quality of care and outcomes. But you can have the greatest leaders that you have, but if you don't have enough staff members, they're still going to experience this burnout yeah of course i mean you know you know you can only do so much but there's got to be hands to lighten the load i mean you know qualified you know hands are hands bodies are bodies and and when there's i mean even you know it's work to be done it's, mm -hmm. it's just like any job you know there is work to be done yeah but i i mean i think we're going to have this issue for a long time because of covid we're, we're going to be understaffed but Besides that, a lot of people be, are being turned away from pursuing this career because they're seeing how miserable and burnt out that these individuals are, especially through COVID. So the Journal of Advanced Nursing issued an article titled Nurse Burnout and the Associated Risk Factors During the COVID-19 pa Pandemic, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And they found that the main risk factors in burnout are younger age, decreased social support, low family and colleagues' readiness to cope with COVID-19 outbreak, increased perceived threat of COVID-19, longer work time in quarantine areas, working in high-risk environments, working in hospitals with inadequate and insufficient material and human resources, increased workload, and lower level of specialized training regarding COVID-19. Yeah. So that, that covers a lot of the concerns that Anne brought up today. Mm -hmm. Resources, staff, not knowing what you're getting into, um, I mean, how could I say, how could we have prepared for COVID-19? We could have done better, but even knowing what we know now, we still don't know a lot about it. And that's a scary thing to go into. Um, so again, we don't have any answers on how to fix this issue, but she certainly brings up a lot of issues that I was not aware of the severity mm -hmm. or just how 
how burnt out that these nurses and these professionals actually are. So I appreciate hearing the other perspective. It makes me a little bit less of an angry patient. Right. Um, and will make me have more patience when I am the patient. Um, but I, I really look forward to the next two episodes and seeing how it all ties together and seeing if this inspires more people to come on and talk about their stories too. Absolutely. I'm excited for the next one. Woohoo!